0: So we are in Acts 27 today. This is the second to last chapter in the, in the book of Acts. And today we're kind of looking at this, this idea that the hope that we have in Christ, this is kind of the word that I got when I was thinking about this sermon, is a sure hope. It's not a hope that we hope in, it's a hope that we're sure of. Because God sent his son Jesus, um, it's a hope that we are sure of. We're not hopeful about it, we're sure of it. Um, And God wants us to know in our hearts today that uh, we can trust him with anything and everything. And this goes beyond our salvation, our eternal life in heaven after we die, and it works its way backwards into those situations in our lives that we find it very difficult to trust God with, uh, the things that just come upon us. If you're anything like me, in fact, uh, believing in the sufficiency of Christ for your salvation isn't necessarily the most difficult thing, but perhaps the smaller issues of life, uh, the day-to-day things can be more troubling and harder to trust God with. But today's message is that, you know, the hope that we have in Christ is not a hope that we hope for, it's a hope that we're sure of. Um, so something that really challenged the, the, uh, the belief of the people in, in the book of Acts, the Jewish people, something that, that frightened them, something that um, made them very nervous was the sea, And actually, this will be interesting, when you read your Bibles uh, at home and you kind of come across anything with the sea, uh, any any stories like Noah's Ark or Jonah and, and the big fish or how God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could walk on dry ground, the sea was a very terrifying thing to the Jewish people. They weren't a seafaring people, and they thought of the sea as a violent and dangerous entity. So when God parted the Red Sea in Egypt and led the Israelites out of slavery through the water, God was showing them, in the most threatening circumstance you can think of, the, the sea, everything that's in it, the waves, the wind, uh, I have I have you. I can do this. I have mastery over this. And for them, that was the biggest demonstration of power that God could possibly do. Uh, I don't know what that would be for us, but for, but for these people... God showing his authority over the waves and the wind and the sea, which was so threatening, was a big deal. Remember in, uh, in Matthew eight twenty seven, there's a huge storm and Jesus and the disciples are in this boat and Jesus is sleeping downstairs while the boat gets tossed around. Uh, very troubling to the disciples. They're somewhere between f- scared and irritated with Jesus for not seemingly caring about their situation. And they wake him up And he just, with a word, he calms the sea, calms the wind. And the disciples say, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And in this, Jesus was saying, actually, I'm not a man, I'm God. Because God is the only one that has mastery over the wind and the waves and the sea. Um, He had authority. We have quite a bit of intellectual, you know, as a people, myself included, you know, intellectual arrogance or kind of a lack of, you know, respecting or fearing the world or God in our day because it seems like all the mysteries of the universe have been unraveled by science or research. Uh, but truly, there, there are great wonders and mysteries in creation. And, you know, we're not, we're not really more, like, more beyond this fear of the, the sea than these people uh, before us. The sea is still a very terrifying thing. People get lost at sea. People get swept off of boats, You know, in the middle of the ocean, Um, the gospel of salvation through Christ never seemed more captivating to me uh, than when I was flying over the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean uh, to get to Bosnia, and we had the most terrifying turbulence I've ever experienced. Have you been on an airplane where they they say, "Oh, put your seatbelt on," you're like, "Oh, it's just turbulence. This is normal." But then, like, the plane drops. You ever? I mean, it's terrifying. We're talking about 15 minutes of that, and I look at the little, you know, Lufthansa, this is where your plane is, in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> That's terrifying. And you're thinking to yourself, how long does it take a helicopter to get to the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean to rescue me, and you think about what, where are you going to hold on to so you don't like sink to the bottom of the, the ocean, you know, pretty scary. That's a time when you certainly feel the fear of God. <laughs> like, I don't have control over this. This plane is just dropping. And it's zero gravity. I'm held in by my seatbelt. The stewardesses look nervous. This is bad. Um, and, you know, the gospel of salvation just never seemed more poignant than at that moment. You know, and I, I had walked into that airplane with having, having walked in a little bit of sin and stuff and not having brought that into confession with God before I left because uh, that's the nature of human beings to withhold that from God. He says, oh, you know, if you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you. And we're like, "Ah, we'll just hold on to it for a while and just keep walking. Things are going okay. That's walking in sin. So I get on this airplane, and all of a sudden, me and God got right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Praise Jesus. And... Um, like uh, just trying to rem- just just you know, I, I, be- I believe in salvation by grace, through faith. I don't believe that if you were you know struck down, having not confessed something that you're going to hell, nothing like that. I'm just saying there was a break in my relationship with God, and, uh, and uh, that fixed it. because <laughs> um, all I could think about, honestly, was watching "Lost and my wife, and you know, am I already dead on this island? All I can think about is... Having a volleyball as my only friend, and just how terrible that would be, or worse. But there's a wildness to the God's creation, and uh, we might look down on some some people as primitive for being scared of the winds and the waves, but they're still pretty scary. And there's still a lot of mysterious stuff out there that's beyond our control. There's some scary stuff deep, deep down in the ocean. Boy, oh boy, that'll make you worship. <laughs> And it's good for us to allow God's creation, which, which reflects who God is. He created it. Think about that in those weird aquariums with those weird fish with the lights and the teeth. You know, God imagined that fish and created it. And it's terrifying. You know, it's just amazing to, to think about how the creation and the, un, the unbridled, wild world is just a reflection of God. And like, to make that cause our hearts to worship him and be in awe of him, uh, It's good. And the, the the really good thing about that experience is um, that this wild God who created all this crazy stuff, um, he loves us. He has placed his affection on us. And he, uh, he desires to walk in close relationship with us and to be a part of our lives. The same way that, uh, that you know, I loved Corey's story of, 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 of with Haley, uh, but, but think about the way that... Uh, Teenagers, young adults in college, parents love to hear from them. They love to hear from their kids, even if their kids are being butts. They love to hear from their kids. That's how God is. God loves us. He set his affection on us. And this wild, um, all-powerful God who has all the authority in heaven and earth, you know, he loves us. And that's a great comfort. He can be trusted. Um, and our hope in him is unshakable because our hope is a sure hope because God set his love on us And chosen us and saved us. So we're going to read uh, Acts 27 together. This is a story of uh, Paul, and he is a prisoner, and they are bringing him to Italy, which is usually a good vacation, but he is a prisoner, so it's not as fun of a vacation, and uh, it's not going to be as much Alfredo in his in his future as he'd probably hope, and um, he's going to stand before Caesar. Uh, and in this chapter, uh, we see his experience of the winds and the waves and the wildness of creation. So I'm going to read this for you. And we're just going to kind of imagine what this experience must have been like. So this is Luke recording the journey, Acts 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramyttium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. from there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia we landed at Myra in Lycia there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhavens. That's a much easier name than all the other names in the chapter so far. <laughs> it sounds like a retirement community, actually. <laughs> we moved along the coast with difficulty, came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. We're coming up into the winter months here. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix, not Arizona, and winter there. There is no ocean in Phoenix. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the nor'easter swept from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day, they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, "Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed." Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep, fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks. They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes They held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You will need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely." So this is, this is a, uh, an incredible story, uh, well documented with lots of detail from, from, from Luke. And we do know that Paul, not, not only from the Bible, but from other historical documents, did make it to Italy and stand before Caesar. Uh, so this, this is a story that really happened, uh, of course. And I'm, no, I'm no, by no means the type of person that says that every story in the Bible is just an allegory, you know, it's just an allegory or a metaphor for life or something... Made up. That's meant to teach us something. Now, I believe that this story really happened, um, but as I look at this account, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that Luke, who wrote this book, had this poetic image of what this all meant, um, and 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 what these what these different aspects of this story really represented. Uh, we have this idea of being saved. We have the idea of of lifeboats and trying to. Uh, keep things together. And in this story, you know, I can see that God wanted his children to have in this boat to have a sure hope in the plan that he had given. He wanted them to go all in into this boat and not hedge their bets at all, as we see in the, uh, in the story of, of the lifeboats that were, that were cut away. Um, when you look in Acts 27, 16, and 17, I want to just highlight a few things in here. Uh, to kind of show you what I'm talking about. It says in Acts 27, as we passed to the lee of the small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. So you have the plan of salvation staying on the boat. You have the lifeboats, which aren't very secure. They pulled the lifeboats into the ship. In Acts 27, 21 to 25, Paul says, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, and you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And he recounts this vision that an angel of God stood beside him and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, for I have faith that it will happen just as God told me. So here's the plan. An angel of the Lord appears to Paul and says tell everyone they have to stay in this ship. And if they do that, everyone is going to be saved. But then we see in Acts 27:30 that in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were weighing anchor uh, from the bow. But Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. And finally in Acts 27, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And then he gave thanks for the bread. And in this way, everyone reached the land safely. It's a really interesting thing in this story. Uh, but these, uh, these, this boat and this plan that God had of everyone staying in the boat and not hedging their bets with these lifeboats that were hanging off the edge is something that really uh, struck a chord with me. As, as a person of faith, as a person who's walking with God. Because I feel like, as I said earlier, trusting in God for my salvation is something that I understand and can really do, do fairly well with. But when it comes to many of the other things in my life uh, that, that make me nervous or are, are difficult for me, I tend to have a lot of little plan Bs hanging off the end of my faith ship. It's really interesting. you know, uh, When it comes to trusting God, with uh, every part of my life, not just my eternal salvation, but every part of my life, I find that I have all these little lifeboats hanging off the edge of my salvation ship. And interestingly, when the storms of life, here's where the allegory is coming in pretty hard, I understand that, when the storms really hit, that's when you kind of realize where your hope really lies. Does it lie in the boat of salvation that Jesus has offered us and trusting him with every area of my life? Or does my hope actually lie in those little lifeboats, which I don't talk about, but, but I know are there, and I know that I can access them if I need to? I think when the storm comes up, we certainly, uh, we certainly come face to face with that reality. Where does our hope lie? And, uh, and these lifeboats can be a lot of different things. Um. They, they can be health, health issues. We heard about that today, you know. Does my hope lie in God for my health ultimately, or am I living in terror about my life and about my health and about what's going to happen to me? Do I trust him with my health? With finances, you know, we tend to have a lot of little lifeboats hanging on, you know. Do I trust God with my finances, or am I living in fear and anxiety about this very critical area of my life. Or, or a sin problem that we have that shows up when, time, when the storm hits, we go to this thing, which is not very helpful to us. That's another lifeboat hanging off of our salvation yacht here, right? So we have all these different boats, uh, places where it's very hard to totally trust in God. And, uh, and if you look at these, these guys... In the story, you know, they were hauling the, they were like worried about the lifeboats. They hauled them into the big boat, you know, to keep them safe. You know, they tried to get into them to get away. Think about how much work it took just to upkeep those lifeboats. They were totally focused on those things. Well, God's salvation, which was a free gift offered to them, just kept sailing on safely. But they were just concerned about these little boats. And uh, they tried to sneak into the boats, and Paul saw them. And knowing the word of the Lord, he said, you know what? If you, if you get in those boats, there's no guarantees for you. And then finally, the centurion cuts those boats off. And all of a sudden, everyone's hope in that ship had to turn to the plan of salvation which Paul had offered. There was no other choice. The ships were cut. So any way that they were hedging their bets or trying to play it safe, gone. Just like that. Even if people were not really willing To have those boats cut off, they were cut off for them, and that, that became plan A. And not a hair on anyone's head was harmed. And one of the things that I think that we often run into in terms of trusting God totally with our lives is this statement, I trust you with that, Jesus, but I'm going to take care of these things myself. These are the things I'm going to take care of. My hope is in you for my salvation, but I don't have hope in you for hardly anything else. I'm going to be upkeeping these boats. I'm going to be varnishing them. I'm going to be uh, sealing them with pitch, making sure they're secure. You concentrate on salvation, God. I'll concentrate on taking care of everything else and controlling everything else. And I think that the challenge from God this morning, from this story a story that literally happened but has a great deal of significance to me allegorically is to to cut ties with the hope that we place in other things besides Jesus, trusting him with every part of our lives. I think the challenge from scripture and from the Holy Spirit is to cut the boats, as a friend of mine said, to burn the boats, to get rid of all the plan Bs, and to say to God, I trust you with my life. Not just my salvation, with my health, with my family, with my finances, with my future, with my home, with my pain, with my, my wounds that I've, I've uh, received in this life that are debilitating to me. I trust you. And God is just great at cutting those lifeboats off when we offer them to, uh, to him and allowing us to feel the fullness of his care and love for us um, as we walk with him in faith. So the challenge from God is, is, is twofold this morning, I think. One is, have you ever trusted Jesus for your salvation at all? Paul shared a plan. He got ignored. You know, then they reevaluated. <laughs> Finally, everyone got on board and chopped the lifeboats off and said, you know what? Our life is in God's plan. Is that something you've done? Have you offered your life to Jesus in this total trust kind of way for your salvation? That it's Jesus' sacrifice uh, which saves you, and your only work is to believe in what He's done and walk that out in your life. Do you have you done that? And that is something that I think God would be very interested in some of you taking a step of faith in this morning. Life is hard. Life doesn't necessarily get easier, but God is with us. The church is with us, and we are secure and safe in God uh, in this life. And you know, secondly, for those who. Have, have put their trust in Jesus and are, are on that, uh, on board with the plan of, of Paul, you know? Are we still keeping these things attached to the side of our boat? Putting so much effort into upkeeping them, making sure they're there, never quite focusing on them because we'd feel kind of bad about it if we did, but, uh, but just knowing that they're there, knowing that we have a plan B uh, if God doesn't move as fast as we'd like him to or if he doesn't come through. I guarantee you, when the storms hit and life gets tough, those little boats that you don't think about very much, you will find out very quickly where your hope lies. Is it in Jesus or is it in these little boats? And I think the challenge to Christians is to trust God totally with our lives. Every aspect. Heart, soul, mind, strength. You know, one of the most beautiful things I heard this year was from someone who was dealing with uh, a difficulty difficult relationship, and then they just said, you know, I have no idea what to do with this, so I'm just going to trust God with it and see what he does. And it's like they just dropped it. They just dropped it and said, you know, we'll see what God does with it. I respected that tremendously because most people, when they get to the end and they can't find a solution, it just bothers them forever. It becomes this boat that we need to figure out what to do with this boat, this lifeboat. Um, But this person said, I'm just going to give it to God. I have no idea what to do with this. And I think that that is, that is a, uh, a statement about belief in the goodness of God, belief in his continual work, belief that salvation extends beyond our eternal soul, which it encompasses, and works its way into those nitty-gritty small uh, details of life, the little uh, places that we struggle. And for all of us, those things are different uh, health, family, security, all kinds of relational issues we can encounter, you name it. Uh, work, uh, fears, anxieties in life. These are all things that God wants to include in his package of, of salvation. He wants us to trust him with those things. So as the as the worship band comes forward, they're going to do a reprise of uh, the song Stronger that they played earlier. And it's just a statement of faith saying to God, I believe you are strong enough. I believe you're stronger than these things in my life and I trust you with them. And whether you have trusted in Jesus before or not or whether you are are ready to deal with these these little lifeboats and these plan Bs in your life right now, it's a time to just offer yourself in faith to God and say, you know what? I might not be there yet, but I'm willing to be willing. Work in my heart. Help me to move away from these things. So this is your time with God Uh, there's nothing more freeing than totally trusting in Jesus with everything. Hard place to get to, but God has the power to change our lives. He has the power to cut those boats and give us that vision of his care for us.